Dragon the Peg is recorded on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the Oji Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. Welcome to Dragon the Peg, a podcast series exploring the lives and careers of drag performers living in Winnipeg, Canada. My name is Graham Hooson, and I'll be your host. Today's episode is one that I've been the most excited to share ever since we recorded it months ago. It seems like every installment of Dragon the Peg I'm hosting another local legend, and I say it so much that it sounds like a cliche, but I think it rings true for so many individuals who've shaped the way we experience drag in our city. This of course holds true for today's guest. For performers who've been around for 15 or more years, he's a household name. For young performers like myself, he's perhaps an elusive figure, the original founder of the now-resuscitated Genderplay Cabaret, and an emperor from 20 years ago. For those in the old guard, I hope today's episode is a great walk down memory lane with the original drag king of Winnipeg, and for my fellow young peers, I hope this episode teaches you as much as it taught me about drag, gender, kinging, and so much more. So without further ado, please help me welcome Emperor 2 and 7, the international sensation, Carlos Las Vegas. started kinging years ago, not so much now, but uh, in the local scene, I'm known as Carlos Las Vegas, and also known as Carlos Las Vegas in the international scene, so, yeah. Wow, kinging, I've never heard it as a verb before. Kinging is a verb. Kinging is a verb. Yeah. It is an absolute honor to have you here. Thank you. I'm so thrilled and excited to be here. It's been a while since Carlos has come out to talk about history and just really thinking about our history internationally and also locally mm-hmm. about uh, performance and drag in a different kind of way. So thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy that you're here. You're, you're like, a, you're a real icon in the scene. Oh. And also a mystery. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of, because a lot of the older guard uh-huh. is no longer performing. Right. So the name of Carlos Las Vegas is like very iconic, but also a lot of people don't have all the stories. So I think this is going to be right. super helpful for a lot of the younger folk. You know, I hope so. And, you know, you, it's interesting that you mentioned older guard because, yes, there's older guard, but also a number of the older guard have passed away. Mm-hmm. And they've passed away just because of age or chronic illness or mm-hmm. HIV. And so, uh, and we don't really have a comprehensive history. No. And so we're relying on uh, oral history and what we could piece together. Yeah. So um, whatever I can do to help piece together uh, things and memories, I'm more than happy to do that. And I super appreciate that. That's 100% true. Like, research for Dragon the Peg is mostly just like a Google search, because like you said, like, all of this has never really been written down comprehensively. Right. It's never been documented in mainstream news, so there's not a lot to go off of except for stories and what other people have said. You're right, but also the culture of drag king and drag kinging is captured differently, yeah. more sociologically, and and when we're looking at gender performance as opposed to, or like, I'm not even opposed to, but just different than how drag queens are captured. We're captured in, in um, um, different kinds of literature, in cultural literature, in pop culture, in uh, feminist um, literature, um, uh, queer history, 
so we're captured in other places, mm-hmm. not necessarily mainstream, because we, you know, drag kings kinging the this notion of what is gender performance from a male lens or a gender fuck lens. Where is there a place for that? Mm-hmm. And it starts to be, you know, really captured in academia than anything else. Really. And so there's bits and pieces here and there, and this notion of the history of drag king is not just about um, what one would perceive as a woman getting dressed up in clothing, but if you look internationally in places like China and places like Japan and whatnot, there's some deep cultural significance when um, someone who's perceived as a woman is dressed up in some kind of attire. Mm-hmm. Different. Interesting. Why do you think that? Why do you think that difference exists? Gosh, I mean, it's so. That's a good question. It's so incredibly complex. I mean, we 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 could look at it from a sociological lens, where um, you know, uh, from a gender lens, a queer history lens. There's so many answers. I mean, I could only share really kind of my theory and whatnot. Um, when we look at queer culture, or homosexuals you know we're talking about like liberation movements Mm -hmm. you know it was a very white cis male um uh conservative Mm -hmm. uh fit in so that we can be accepted with mainstream and this notion of queer fucking or gender fuck performance and whatnot is a really radical it's a really radical act i mean it, it it happens but Culturally, it was our culture um, ready, you know, at the time. Drag queens, for example, have existed through it, have always existed, mm-hmm. always, always existed. Uh, or effeminate men dressing in, in, in female attire has always existed. But when we look at the politically and our laws and what we were trying to accomplish as a community, to be seen as, at the time, for a number of people still, equal. Mm-hmm. Not equitable, but equal, meaning that we're just as valued as those straight folks, uh, so we need to act like those straight folks. Uh, we're not going to push the margins or push it with, we're going to keep th- certain things in the closet and keep it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so right now what was really important alongside the drag movements was our s- civil history. And so I think that there was a, there was a lot of containment going on with what was going on in cultural media, what is still acceptable in cultural media. I mean, look at Ru- RuPaul's show, like her mm-hmm. her like drag race show. You still don't see, you know, um, you you don't see trans folks. Mm-hmm. You don't see kings. You don't see gender queer. Fu- I mean, there's a few gender fuckers, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. But that's not the audience that she she wants to reach. Yeah. I get it from a marketing standpoint to bring in others. Even today's world, like drag kings or whatnot, mm-hmm. it throws the storyline off. Mm-hmm. So, so thinking about it from not from a lens of this is the cultural culturally the right thing to do, mm-hmm. but from marketing, from what's acceptable, from yes. like sponsorship, where is the fit? Which mm-hmm. is the the big question. So, I mean, it's a long answer because it's so incredibly complex, and you know, I'm just touching the surface. Yeah, wow, and that's incredibly topical because I mean, like year after year. We're watching these like announcements right. of the cast, right. and we're all just like crossing our fingers that like an openly trans person or openly non-binary person mm-hmm. or a drag king is accepted on there. But like year after year, we're disappointed, and I think that mm-hmm. 
part of like <laughs> the healing that we have to go as a community is realizing that RuPaul's Drag Race is never going to represent drag truthfully and honestly because mainstream media I just don't think is honestly prepared to handle queerness at its truest form which is not palatable to a cis heterosexual audience right so think about that then um, cascading to queer culture and mm. who is represented who's not because mm. we're not just looking at um, kings not represented but when we're looking at patriarchy and it being top down who controls what mm-hmm. that um, there is a parallelity that happens in our queer culture as well mm. so it doesn't surprise me it's sad it's disappointing because you know the radical folks are the ones that really at the end of the day push the agenda yeah and it's the radical folks at the end of the day that push the limits so that laws are changed mm-hmm. but they're not getting their dues they're not getting that kind of recognition that they do truly deserve mm-hmm. and rupaul like this is from my perspective mm-hmm. as somebody who is like an advertising major rupaul's marketing team still believes that their primary audience is probably like um cisgender heterosexual women is kind of how the way that I see it. RuPaul's Drag Race is not made for queer people. It's made to kind of commodify this existence, is how I sort of separate myself and Mm -hmm. the drag movement that I understand it from the way that it's seen on its largest scale. Oh, I agree. I mean, it's the same thing with, if you think about, like, really, like, back then, like, queer as folk, like, people, what is great about um, Drag Race and other mainstream shows is that people can relate to them or at least there's a piece of them that are represented and it doesn't necessarily represent all of them mm-hmm. but people can attach that but statistically when we're looking at sexual gender minorities or sexual gender diverse people as the minority of people mm-hmm. you want to reach a, a wide audience I never saw um, Drag Race as a show specifically for queer folks mm-hmm. I saw, I, I've always seen it as a show for um, cis uh, straight women and I'm, you know, I'm not, I mean, that's fine. That's fine. But let's just, you know, um, let's just name it for what it is. Yeah, completely. That's not, that's not a show that's meant to capture the true essence of right. drag. It's a reality show. Right. Like, right. by definition. Right. And so when you look back then in terms of, you know, kind of this topic of drag kings. Mm-hmm. And um, in 2014, uh, I was involved in a, uh, a documentary years ago. Uh, which was produced by uh, and directed by Nigel, oh, what's his name? Nigel Noble? Nigel Noble, yes, sorry about that. Don't worry. Nigel Noble, who is an Academy Award-winning director, Mm -hmm. I got a phone call from a performer who was in the States and said, hey, do you want to do this? Like, we we got approached, and it's a tour, and we're going to, tour several um, states, 16 cities plus, and there's going to be a, a bunch of film crew following us. It's kind of the parallelity of Priscilla, mm-hmm. but in a very cinema, verite, very real, really thinking about the cultures of in the states and what it would be like for genderfuck performers and drag folks to just hop on a bus like real like I'm, we're talking about the real deal mm-hmm. and I thought holy shit like what like what are we talking about here <laughs> and so the ensemble there you know there was myself and uh, there was uh, Johnny Cat and there was 
Pat Riark, who was the the kind of coordinate all this. There was Ken Vegas and Luster and Christopher Newell. A and so this was a really diverse troop of people. And we all hopped on this bus and there was film crew everywhere. Mm -hmm. And we toured. We toured and we went into, because we wanted to bring the message that this is possible mm -hmm. and to create community and form community. I'm, I'm thinking about it now I mean, that's what it was at the time. I was just so starry-eyed. I'm thinking, oh my God, we're going to be on a bus and there's going to be like, you know, Academy Award ring people around. And, you know, I thought that was amazing because yeah. I loved Priscilla. And so, uh, but, you know, we went into places that, uh, you know, there were myself and Luster who were um, the folks of color that were on the bus. Mm -hmm. And we would go into these states really kind of, uh, red conservative confederate flag people mm -hmm. right where we would go on this bus and you know guns and rifles we there was a scene where it was there was a slice of it but it wasn't there but the whole thing of it was that we need to stop the tour bus at a, a one stop but we, we this was in Alabama mm -hmm. Alabama 2003 like 2003 mm -hmm. if you could imagine Alabama 2003 where we were told, Luster, Carlos, duck, duck. You cannot be seen because we're asking for trouble, right? And so we couldn't even enter certain land because of, and this was, you know, this was kind of part of the journey, which is, gosh, you know, these gender fuckers, these poor performers of people of color and all kinds of, you know, attitudes and, you know, um, personalities going into these communities mm -hmm. and performing, mm -hmm. doing burlesque doing strip, doing traditional lip sync, doing genderfuck performances. Mm -hmm. What is that like in Alabama in 2003? Oh my God. You know what I mean? And then we did this over, we went to New York and Toronto and Chattanooga and, you know, I don't even remember all the cities because it was just such a blur. When you're touring every day, it's such a, it was such a blur. But that was one of the first few um, uh, really kind of for real, like, um, documentaries that were out there that featured drag kings of sorts. How long were you on tour with drag kings on tour? <laughs> mm, four weeks. Four weeks? Four, three weeks? Three to four weeks? Oh my god, all across America and Canada? That's right. That's insane. It, it, was, it was hardcore. I can't even imagine being on a tour bus with like a bunch of drag performers. It was a tour bunch with a bunch of drag performers and but also the you know, uh, we we really, uh, Pat um, and Sonia Slutsky, who was also part of the directorial team, mm -hmm. Ken doing the kind of the marketing, um, the visuals, the logos. I, I, we we did all we did it by ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so imagine we're not just producing one show, we're producing twenty four shows, yeah. and with places that we have not. Um, we've never been to mm -hmm. and relying on the community to help us along and so we were in venues there were hundreds of pe hundreds of people to dozens of people mm -hmm. we were in venues where um, we were in downtown New York to like basements you know <laughs> uh, like dungeons of sorts you know so it was it was like it was amazing but again there was uh, still the um, the pressures of having the cameras and what message that we were trying to convey Mm -hmm. And I could only speak for myself, you know, it, 
at the time, I mean, mind you, this was years and years ago. You know, I was a different person back then. My mental health was different back mm-hmm. then. My relationships were different back then. And so there was an, an, a lot of, and I was in my early 20s back then. And so the, the my if I were to ever do it again, which I wouldn't, but if I <laughs> ever to do it again, it would be a heck of a lot different than it was. Uh, it would be it would be different mm-hmm. for sure. What was that environment like? I mean, I'm I'm mm-hmm. sure that if people watch the watch the documentary, mm-hmm. they can kind of get a better understanding. I haven't seen it yet, which makes me so frustrated that I didn't find it before this because I would have so much more juicier things to say. But what was that environment like touring with documentarians right. and fellow performers? Well, I think one of the, first of all, it was why are we doing this? That was mm-hmm. the big, that was really big for us. Why were we doing this? And what we didn't and no one taught us is that when you put five producers, we're not talking just performers, mm-hmm. five producers, MCs, performers in a small bus mm-hmm. with all of their costume and garb <laughs> and a very tight schedule and no one taught us about like conflict resolution, mm-hmm. it, um, it at times uh, got the worst of us you know and the best of us mm-hmm. and so um it affected our you know i could think back it affected our relationships it still has there's still residuals from that because there was interpersonal conflict that happened mm-hmm. but that's also part of you know unbeknownst to us i mean you, you there's gonna be bound to have con- oh, no one told us about that we were just friends getting together yeah. who lived in different cities that saw each other maybe once or twice a year at a conference and it was it was at times chaos and at times it was lovely mm-hmm. um, at times it was healing for many of us it was restful for many of us I slept throughout the entire time and one of the things that my colleagues then would probably say if they could remember what Carlos was most likely they'll say he slept throughout the entire thing <laughs> and that literally I the reason why I slept throughout the entire thing and that's the cameras were on me I was just sleeping you yeah. know and my character developed there wasn't much of a character development for me uh, because I was so tired I was so tired I was exhausted I was producing in Winnipeg not knowing what I was doing and still navigating family dynamics and coming out and all that other stuff being a person of color no one else to like really kind of no one had my back Mm -hmm. and so it was rest for me and so every time we drove three hours at a time I just slept (laughs) you know because I that was rest for me and so I really appreciated that wow yeah that makes perfect sense to me that it's kind of all of these whirlwind emotions and sort of like experiences crammed in and then also just sleeping (laughs) I know it was you know it was lovely but when we were on we were on I mean it's just go, 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 the cameras are on, know your stuff, know what you're going to say, know what songs you're going to do, make sure your costumes don't stink after <laughs> that much time oh together, clear the the shit out of the the truck, you know, like, yeah. literally, like, the sanitary the stuff, like, tank, <laughs> all that stuff, and, and a van following, it was, it was, um, it was quite the circus, but it was, uh, you know... Thinking back now, it was it, it definitely was an amazing experience, despite that there were there were there were pa- there was pain, mm-hmm. and but there was also joy. Yeah, and we hope that we impacted the cities that haven't ever seen something like this before. Then there was the myself and and uh, counterpart back then, uh, Ken Vegas out of uh, Washington D.C. 
and we collaborated on the first international drag king magazine called Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, gosh, we've got to capture this history somehow. And then with some collaboration with who was um, n- known, still known as Anderson Toon uh, from um, San Francisco, um, all, some of these folks that I'm mentioning, they're all from the Drag King book that was written by uh, Jack Halberstam and, and Del LaGrace Volcano. That was the o- other book that was out there. We wanted to, Ken and I really wanted to capture who are these people and ev- everyone, our culture needs to know who these people were, what they do, what they contribute to their community. Mm-hmm. So we featured uh, folks from not just Canada and the U.S., but we went as far as we could do the research. And Anderson Toon also had uh, a timeline as well as for, uh, drag kings in the United States. And so we did some collaborations in, in, in the first magazine, and then there was it went up to four or five magazines, uh, and then we stopped because it was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was picking up a kind of traction that we just couldn't handle, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, people wanted more and more and more, and this was on the, you know, on the sides of our desks. We had other things to do. We were producers. We had jobs. We went to school, and then producing an international magazine was just too much. Yeah. But also, it was because it was the first. It was radical again, you know. So it was one of those things where we didn't know what we were doing. We <laughs> had no idea. There was nothing that was out there, and. Um, we did everything that we could at the time and thankfully there's you know there's the internet now I mean we really weren't operating there wasn't really a lot that was out there on the web mm-hmm. but we were glad that we were one of the first if not the first uh, magazines that were out there trying to kind of pull the the culture together oh my god that's just so many amazing things just in that like five minute period I oh gosh I could tell you stories about <laughs> stories of of you know what you know what the movement was back then and you know how it you know the ebbs and flows it's really mm-hmm. exciting to kind of go back in in the memory 20 plus years ago to kind of honor you know all those folks that really were foundational in uh that really paved the way for folks today to do what they're doing yeah i mean like first kind of going like all the way back to the first comment i think that it's so important to hear your perspective on how kings are perceived and documented and talked about and treated differently than queens because I think Mm -hmm. that right now in our city we're seeing more of an influx of kings and we're still sort of seeing them talked about and treated in different ways than their queen counterparts Mm -hmm. and genderfuck performers in the same kind of way Mm -hmm. and I think that sort of your commentary on that really is a great way for us to kind of understand why this is happening Right. Why why people seem to have trouble understanding the concept of a of a drag king, which I mean to people in the scene seems so obvious, but mm-hmm. to a lot of people seems like so weird and radical. Okay, I'm back. Ladies and gentlemen, make some noise for Baron Two and Emperor Seven. So, I just found out today that the first time you debuted as a king was 27 years ago Mm -hmm. when you organized the first ever UW homo hop, which still happens, which is still going on. So, oh my gosh. So, there, 
there was myself, Richard Hansen, uh, a few other folks also uh, that uh, Seuss. I, gosh, there's so many folks that I remember uh, back in the day, the University of Winnipeg, uh, that we uh, collectively uh, coordinated Homo Hop. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I know how many years when I first hit the stage because I aligned myself with how many homo hops? Like, where are we at now? Right we're now? at, we must be at 27 because you 20, said that there was yeah. the 25 in 2017. I am, if they're still going on, if they're at 27. They are. Okay. They're organized now by, I believe, mm-hmm. I believe I might get this wrong. I believe it's Stara David, who's okay. a performer currently okay. and runs uh, Slunt Factory, which is another showcase. Amazing. But I believe that it's, it's yeah, I think it's still going on. That's amazing, right? Yeah. So uh, it was, and, and I didn't even, quite frankly, I had no idea that Drag Kings is, existed. This was a completely organic process for me. Wow. And it was asked by uh, another performer whether I'd be interested in uh, dressing up and doing this little dance routine and then helping her, and she was a drag queen, with a number, and I'm thinking, oh, it's like airband? Like, are we talking like airband? Like, stuff like that? You're like on that? bass in the back. Right, that's what I saw. Like, I'm thinking, oh, that's kind of fun. Sure, let's do it. And then it became like, you know, uh, we met, and it's like, no, no. She was like, no, you're going to be a, you're going to be like this, like, Roman statue, and you're going to wear all this talcum powder and these robes, mm-hmm. and you're going to do, and we're going to do Madonna's Vogue. <laughs> or something of that sort. I think it was Vogue. Mm-hmm. What year was Vogue? I don't even remember. That would have been, what would that have been? Would that have been 90, would that have been 92 when Homo Hop started? Mm. Am I, we gotta look back on those I days. think it's 92 because I think you said 20, 27 years. I'm 22, born oh. in 97, so that would have been 90. You're 22? I'm 22 years old. Oh my God. Right. People think I'm. People think I'm 36. No, no. I, you, look, you know, oh, I couldn't. You. I wouldn't even. T- you know, it's one of those things where you know I started and you weren't even born. Like, yeah. You, you were still an egg. You, I was less than still, an egg. You were less. You were somewhere in that. You know, you were somewhere in that ovary. So it's one of those things where it's like, wow. So you know, talcum powder came out, did this kind of mm-hmm. statue poses. There was four of us. And we, we did that number, and uh, it, it, there wasn't any kind of gendering. It was just androgyny of some sort. Mm-hmm. And then there was a number, another piece, another, and this was amazing, if you think about it. Now I was kind of reminiscing about it, that the piece was where I really got into it. Uh, My Baby's Got a Secret, or mm-hmm. Secret, by Madonna. Yeah. Do you remember that song? You got to listen to it. You got to listen to it. <laughs> And so Madonna was our Gaga, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so the this the song was really about um, you know a, 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 te- a relationship, and there was like holding a secret. Mm-hmm. And the narrative of between me and the performer at the time was that we both were in love with one another. We were this heterosexual couple, mm-hmm. but then role reverse. Our secret was. We weren't the gender that we portrayed ourselves to ah. be. And there was a reveal that was going on on stage. And we started off, I mean, the narrative was, we started off as a couple. We, there was um, internal tension. We started to, to start to really kind of peel, literally peel off the layers of our clothes mm-hmm. to reveal that 
what was underneath was so different than what we portrayed ourselves to be, which is such a narrative of many people's lives mm-hmm. of, of fronting or um, being in the closet or needing to be somebody else mm-hmm. in order to be seen right, and understood. Yeah. And so that played out on stage and uh, and it, we ended up in uh, an erotic uh, we we essentially stripped and then we did this erotic scene on stage where the ro- gender roles became reversed mm-hmm. and I remember like feeling alive mm-hmm. you know really alive and the audience was just I couldn't my ears were ringing because they were just <laughs> screaming They'd never seen something like this before mm-hmm. as far as I understood and so again this was what 27 years ago Wow! and I thought this was great I want how can I do this how can I do more of this <laughs> anyone else want to join me right mm-hmm. but I had other things on my mind I had I was involved in other adventures and so I took a little bit of a break uh, until I was invited to um, perform again and this was uh, with the uh, when the international court system with the, the SOMS, mm-hmm. the Soviet Society, the Imperial, it wasn't the Imperial Sovereign Court back then, it was actually what we call a barony, and it's uh, really an organization in its infancy. Okay. When it was really start, for those who aren't aware of it, uh, this organization was starting, it was really based on drag performance and fundraising and community building. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was involved in, in that, and that was the venue. Any venue that invited me to perform, I would just say yes. Ah. And so whether it was the court system, whether it was the bar, whether it was uh, a fundraiser, I would just say yes because I loved it. I mm-hmm. loved uh, this notion of playing somebody that I wasn't or pushing the boundaries uh, a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I, again, as drag queens had their their drag mamas and all you know their houses and whatnot i had nobody mm-hmm. there was nobody out there there were you know, thinking back with club 200 closest female identified folks who were tomboyish let's just say wearing tails mm-hmm. or masculine lesbians who uh, maybe danced or s- sang on the p- sang live mm-hmm. or something of that sort but there was that was that was pretty much about it and so i was on my own Mm-hmm. With and I couldn't, you know, I I didn't feel like a, a drag queen. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what else to categorize myself as, mm-hmm. because a whole bunch of things were going through my mind in terms of my own identity, that I just organically thought, okay, that's what a drag queen is. I'm gonna do the opposite. Ah. So whatever you do, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do the opposite, because. My gender is different than your gender, and so I'll just do the opposite. That's cool. Wow. And it's almost like thinking like air bands, reinvented air band. This was really, really fun. And uh, that's how it, it started for me again. No one else told me how to do this stuff, uh, and that was fun. And I thought, oh, you know, like I could wear sequins. I can wear, uh, I could wear big costumes. I could glue on rhinestones and gems like I could do all that stuff too mm-hmm. and uh, nobody really told me how to do what to do because again nobody else existed yeah and so it was just this kind of 
you know, I would hang out with the queens, and we'd all kind of have fun, and if you wore a, a, a gold sequin something, then I'm going to wear a gold sequin something too to match you, but in my style, which is tails, or some a hat or something, mm-hmm. and that, that's what it was for the first couple of years. And then the internet really evolved, mm-hmm. and that's when I found the International Drag King Extravaganza and Conference in the United States, which was in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And that was 1998, 99-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, there are people like me out there uh-huh. in another country. Bring me, like, I gotta go. I mm-hmm. gotta, these are my people. They're calling <laughs> my, I gotta go. And so it didn't matter how I got there. I just found myself there. I don't even think I was working. I just remember finding myself there. And my, to my amazement, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, there's, there's like hundreds of us together in one space. And there's a conference about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, that was amazing. And I just blew my mind. And then I found, you know, I, was, I remember walking into this room and I was wearing kind of more like, I'm from the Imperial Court System kind of garb, which is kind of hoity-toity. Mm-hmm. And I, I stood there in this room with all these people in different costumes and fake mustaches and, you know, out of this world kind of, clothing and I stood there and someone approached me and introduced themselves uh, and that was Luster who was one of the founders and he said uh, where are you from and I said I'm from Canada mm-hmm. and he said oh there, there's other Canadians here and I'm like what what I was like my mind was blowing and he's like no no like a little, you know and he's like, oh, I'm going to introduce you. And then there was, uh, he, Lester then called Jake over, who was also one of the co-producers. Hey, this is Carlos from Canada. You know, can you bring Carlos over to the other Canadians? And next thing you know, I was hooking up with, um, uh, who was known back then as Drag King Flair, but mm-hmm. Flair, uh, Dirk Diggler, and, and Christopher Noel. And so uh, I was kind of walked over, and I'm like, oh, my God, you're my, you're my people. Mm-hmm. You're my people. And so, and that's, you know, and this is, again, this was like, you know, gosh, 1990, 1999 at this point, 1999, 2000, Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And so we connected and um, I returned a year later and then met Anderson Toon and who then connected me with a number of folks, Aaron O'Neill, who is an incredible photographer um, from San Francisco, Mm -hmm. who... If anyone saw the this Drag King book, it's called the Drag King book, all the photos that were in there, I met these people from Kings, from uh, East Coast to West Coast, New York City. Mm-hmm. And then we started all to connect. We started all connecting, all connecting. And then Anderson Toon, who, was, who is really in one of the grandfathers of, of the contemporary Drag King movements in the United States, uh, and Aaron, a partner at the time, really took me under their wing and um, we really talked about character development and uh, who was Carlos Las Vegas what uh, Carlos wanted to accomplish 
what was the message, um, and then what can I do? I said, I didn't want to just be a drag king anymore who just uh, pranced around in sequence. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do something more that really pushed the limits, that honored uh, our community, honored the people who are part of our community, and also create a narrative, more of a political social narrative. Mm -hmm. And so essentially I was trained to really think about my numbers in a much deeper way, um, whether it would be about uh, our struggles with same-sex marriage or our struggles with gender or our struggles with coming out to our families or our um, joys of finding one another, our joys of kink, our joys of being creative. That was the narrative that my character really wanted to embody. Mm -hmm. And so at Miss Purdy's Women's Club at the time, where it was my, would consider a home bar, as well as happening social club, that it wasn't just about me lip syncing, it was stories. And if people kind of remember, if they really were to think, it was about stories. It was about my struggles with religion. It was about um, my struggles with relationships, my struggles with gender, and that um, I was putting it out there vulnerably. And one mm -hmm. of the things I was taught was to be vulnerable on stage because this is the place that you are loved, you are accepted, and you're not judged. And so long as I don't judge other people for what they do and who they are, they're not gonna judge me either as a performer. Mm -hmm. And so I played out my life on stage for a good 10 years. And people start to come and people and the, the scene start to grow and people are doing their own narratives on stages and all it became political and social and storytelling. It wasn't just, it was fun. I mean, still we did the air band lip syncing kind of <laughs> things. That was kind of fun, mm -hmm. you know, for, for that was their thing, but that wasn't my thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at its heyday, international, the international drag king extravaganza traveled in the United States, mm -hmm. and, and I put in a bid for it to come to Winnipeg, the first Canadian city, and won. We won. Wow. So this was back in 19, no, no 2000 and, gosh, 2007, 2008, mm -hmm. uh, went to Chicago, Minneapolis, Winnipeg, for example, and we, where, where it was, you know, and I wish you were around, mm -hmm. we went to the Burton Cummings Theater ah. and filled that entire place Wow! Up. It was 20 cities represented of drag king troops and gender fucker troops and burlesque troops coming together and uh, filling the stage. And that's how large it grew. We were not just at the clubs, we then expanded to the, what's the cultural, at the cultural center again on Ellis and... Um, oh, was that West End? Yeah, West, we yeah. went to West End Cultural Center. Hey. And we filled it. We went to UW and we, the we, Eckhart Gramate Hall, mm -hmm. and we filled it. It Amazing. wasn't these things anymore. It wasn't, we tr in, in a sense, we wanted to bring the message out there. And people kept playing out their characters and their stories. And it was a really, it was really beautiful to see a place where people, where they felt they could belong. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, that was 
why I did it because I wanted to feel a place where I could belong mm-hmm. and not marginalized and um, not stigmatized and if folks want to come along for the ride or on the ride and want to find a place to belong this is where it was at you know at least the shows that I produce that mm-hmm. I will love you for who you want. Follow my rules. You know, of course. <laughs> you know, we had, you know, there was like still the rules. Yeah. Of producing a show. But you will be loved for who you are. And it then became not just, you know, um, dr- drag queens, gender fuckers, female identified folks. We all shared space. Mm-hmm. It became a cabaret. It became a kind of a kind of a fantasia of performers that came together. Uh, because we needed this. It was healing for our community. So it wasn't just about the kings. It was about it was about it was about all of us and and those were and I'm kinda getting a little bit emotional about this because it was a place for people to feel loved in a different kind of way that they've never experienced before. It sounds like the strip that you're kinda talking about developing is the gender play cabaret. Mm. Is that so? Well, you know, the Gender Play Cabaret had a couple of iterations. Ah. And the iteration shifted uh, when with, with the bars that um, either closed and opened mm-hmm. and so, uh, or accessibility-wise. And so th- there really wasn't a troupe per se. I mean, if we had to kind of go back again with Miss Purdy's Women's Club, there wasn't really a troupe. There were shows. Mm-hmm. And when that closed people just organically gravitated to uh, geos. Um, There were some shows uh, at Happenings, but not really that I could remember. I could be wrong, but this is just going again off my memory. Um, And then it went to, it went to geos and there was the first iteration of Gender Play Cabaret. Mm -hmm. And again, a collective of folks, uh, and I, you know, I quite frankly, I don't even remember everyone's name at this point because we're talking years ago. Mm-hmm. It then morphed into Fantasia Affair, uh, and and this was another iteration. And then there was a break uh, until it reemerged again just recently. So, if, if we're talking, you know, kind of the, you know, a collective of people. Who uh, Anna and the the whole the, the the values of gender play cabaret, which is we have space for you. Um, we're gonna you know for me at the very beginning was the kind of this philosophy of um, you're invited around the table. Mm-hmm. You're always invited around the kitchen or the dinner table because we'll always make space for you, mm-hmm. and you'll always be welcome. And that's you know the kind of the foundation of the original gender play cabaret mm-hmm. uh, and I am just thrilled that and it just warms my heart that there is a uh, new iteration of it um, being produced with a number of performers um, that would not get that kind of um, attention that they deserve in mainstream because of who they are or the mm-hmm. kind of art that they do. So it, and not just performance, but again, a, a cabaret of queerness, whatever that mm-hmm. perform queer performance might be. I'm just really thrilled 
yeah. that's happening. It's it's so it's so cool. Mm-hmm. It's so cool to be talking to you because gender play gender play is held so closely to everybody's hearts right now. It's such a it's such a great positive space to really try out and explore everything whether it's mm-hmm. whether it's a message that you want to share about yourself or about the world it's such a cool positive space how did that conversation come to be when when hari reno approached you and and said that <laughs> said that they wanted to bring it back well hari approached me and i mean we've been friends for years mm-hmm. um and there were hints here and there and i kind of just I just kind of put in the back of my mind, like, what, I wonder what I wonder what Hari's up to. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, finally, it was the, you know, can we go for, you know, can we connect more formally? And uh, they just shared with me, you know, um, what my thoughts were about uh, our, where are we at here in Winnipeg right now? Mm-hmm. And thinking about oh, you know, I want to do this. And I thought, that's just, you know, that's amazing that you want to put in this kind of time and energy and love uh, to it. And, you know, I just blurted it out. I said, people still remember, you know, gender mm-hmm. ca- gender play cabaret. Why don't you just... And it was just like this unilateral decision because mm-hmm. it was, again, there was a bunch of us. I just said, you know, why don't you just use the name like re-resurrect mm-hmm. you know gender play cabaret because it's you know i'm thinking that's the that's the thread for all of us for many of us over the over two decades people can remember mm-hmm. and what an opportunity to to um blend and to bring you know history and then to you know a- and uh what's going on contemporarily um and it's also a venue that people remember and they cherish and they love and so when they went for it, I'm thinking this is, I, you know, and the, that very first um, show that happened last year, and they said, you know, do you want to perform? I'm thinking, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> the last time I did, you know, some kind of performance was over 10 years ago. There's just absolutely no way, no way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really happy for them. And then I thought to myself, oh, man, I really, I really miss that stage. I really miss the feeling uh, of that kind of love and joy Mm -hmm. that it brought people. Not necessarily brought me, actually, it brought people. Um, And I thought last minute, because I have a lot of um, performance, quite frankly, stage performance um, anxiety, and a lot of people didn't know Mm -hmm. that at the time, but... Uh, for those who remember back then, I would be before a big show, I would be laying down horizontally and catching my breath. I would have panic attacks. Mm. And I remember being at this one, my last few performances before I stopped at a hotel and I was just like on the ground, like just hyperventilating. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is why I'm, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting older and I can't keep hyperventilating th- this way. Um, and, uh, you know, I said, you know, I, I'll do it under the condition of you better not tell anyone I'm doing this mm. because I need the opportunity to back out. 
Yeah. Like, I need the, if I can't do this, and I can't, I don't have a lot of energy right now, um, but I'll pull something out uh, of my back pocket that I think people will remember, and mm. if they don't, they'll have a good time. <laughs> and so, um, and so that's what happened. And the first one, I'm thinking, you know, I walked in and people were like, Carlos, are you, are you, you know, I was just, I wasn't even dressed. And I'm like, Carlos, are you going to, and, and I'm like, don't even go there. And I just, I still said no. Like I was, and I, in my mind, I'm thinking, no, I'm not going to do this, even though everything was prepared because I still wanted him out. And I did not want to take away the, the energy that was really meant for those performers on stage and for Haru, who really deserved everything, like all the props. Uh, and I didn't want to take that away. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want, you know. And so uh, I, f- I finally just kind of said, you know, fuck it, we'll do it, you know. And after judging, you know, what was going on, I thought, even though my everything was still set, I knew I could have pulled out last mm-hmm. minute that people are having a good time. Everyone is getting the love that they deserve. The energy is good. No one's going to take anything away from anybody. And... I didn't want to, be, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I didn't, that was such a, in my mind, I was self-critiquing, thinking, I'm being such a narcissistic fool. Like, everyone <laughs> is getting love. That is the whole point of gender play cabaret. And doggone it, I want that love too. <laughs> and so I just, you know, I did my last number and it was uh, a lot of fun to do. And, and um, people came up from 20 years ago or 10 years ago, no, it was 20, 10, 15 years ago, which is, mm-hmm. let's say 15 he said, I remember that number 15 years ago. <laughs> and I'm like, no way. That was so great. You know, and, and so then it became kind of that, you know, wow, I can't believe you pulled that out. You know, and I thought, I can't believe I pulled that out either. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was yeah, one of the few that I've done this year. Uh, but it was, I'm so, so happy for all the folks who are committed to Gender Play Cabaret. Tari for doing it, you know, and for the city and for our culture to still embrace it. Yeah, it's such a magical night. And I, I saw you perform. I was at the very first one. Oh, you saw that And I didn't know who you were. <laughs> yeah. Because I, well, I, yeah. I was so green. That yeah. was, um, yeah. I think, before I'd even sort of like started. I think I'd started recording, but mm-hmm. um, it was like one of the first shows that I'd ever seen. And I just remember it was hysterical. Well, you know, um, it was... It was easy to do, mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm glad that you were there. Well, a lot of people don't know, you know, who Carlos Las Vegas is. You know, there was a name from years back. There's, if you Google, sure, you know, again from years back, and then w- when you weren't even born, you know, mm-hmm. years. And and part of me had felt solace in that, and comfort in that, that you didn't know who I was, mm-hmm. which helped my nerves, quite frankly, mm-hmm. that. There's no way that I could screw this up because a lot of people didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of glad. But then there were people who did. And it meant a lot yeah, to them. It did, actually. That's it was really fun. good. Yeah. I'm really, 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 really fucking excited for tonight. I am old enough to remember the gender play cabaret when it first rolled around the Winnipeg scene in the late 90s, early 2000s. Picture I'm not old. I don't look it. Because I have Instagram filters. It was a different time. But I am not old. So, 
This is super exciting. This is super important for all of us here. All of us here. This is one of the first, this was one of the first faces that I've ever seen drag king performers that I've ever seen non-binary people. So I want you to bring all the fucking two sets of amazing tonight. And let's make some noise for your first Sure, sure. You know what? I want to pay homage to, you know, um, folks across North America and those in other countries mm -hmm. uh, who still feel marginalized. Well, first of all, history is important. Mm -hmm. um, when I met with uh, Flair uh, and other Toronto folks, you know, they started their troupe, which was originally called the uh, the fabulous uh, Toronto Drag Kings back in 1999 mm -hmm. same reasons why all of us started which was we need to create space for us mm -hmm. and because quite frankly there were queens who did not want to share space with us mm -hmm. and there are still queens who don't want to share space with us mm -hmm. and th these are folks who took risks and I don't think people realize the kind of risks that people took to create venue for people who felt excluded and didn't feel like they had a place. Mm -hmm. Or who took risks because they didn't want to be the shady queen who was talking to punching down on people. They wanted to create a venue that was so ever-embracing. And they took risks because people didn't have money. People couldn't afford certain kind of clothes. People couldn't, you know, people were still like, you know they were food banking it, and mm -hmm. they were they were performing it. You know, yeah. and uh, there are people who are doing it for, you know, if we think again culturally, which is my my big thing. Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot of venues for people of color. There aren't a lot of venues for non-binary and trans folks. Mm -hmm. There are not a lot of venues to explore your body, your 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 gender, uh, in a safe place that is uh, creative mm -hmm. and healing and for some people spiritual, right? And so these are the folks who started, you know, this movement, you know, from Vancouver, I, you know, I'm, I'm just even thinking of back then 20 plus years ago, what existed, I can think of like pockets here and there. Mm -hmm. Vancouver, some pockets in Regina, some pockets in definitely Toronto, one or two kings in Ottawa. I couldn't think of anyone in, in uh, the East Coast places along with um, the history of, of racism in, in, in the United States, how these milieus co were co-created uh, alongside with the same philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a safe place for you. And if even for an hour or two, you can let go and surrender into the moment of who you are, this is a place where you could come. And so that, it's so important for me to acknowledge, you know, the, I, I'm even thinking uh, Ken Vegas out of DC and his uh, mentors as well, San Francisco, uh, again, Columbus. There's, again, those pockets. I just want to pay homage to all those folks. I want to go even thinking overseas to China and number of the, the women then, back then, and I'm, I'm not still sure now, who performed for, and this is, this is an interesting you know, historical content, mm -hmm. context, lesbian women in China performed at straight bars for um, men and women. 
Wow. And so for different cultural reasons. And so it's one of the, you know, one of the, again, one of those things where our culture is just so rich um, that we need, we need to, you know, find places to consolidate this information. Uh, Moby Dick out of uh, New York City with Ken Vegas is, um, they're starting a, a drag king timeline wow. um, history as well. If you Google, uh, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head, uh, but if, you, if someone were to Google Drag King History Timeline, that um, it's, you know, it, it's there starting, and they start capturing uh, histories back in the 19th century wow. of people, particularly women, who are dressing up uh, in drag. Amazing. So way back, back then, too, I'm just even trying to think of even, again, Winnipeg, there was Miss Christine back in you know happenings days gosh you know i don't there's just so many names that are so important to acknowledge and a number of these people were indigenous as well as people of color Mm -hmm. who started this yeah and even when i started i recognize now that um it wasn't a race issue for me back then or me being a person of color but thinking back actually it was it actually Mm -hmm. was because there wasn't venue for us to, it's not just that we were queer, but we had multiple oppressions that we need to shoulder mm-hmm. and need to let go. And a number of us were killing ourselves or dying by suicide. A number of us were, fell victims to violence by our own partners uh, and others. And, and we would share these stories together. And again, this is one of these venues where it was again different than a, a drag queen venue. It was it was community. It was love, and that's all I could you know really kind of. Um, I mean that that was really the 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 central theme of it all, mm-hmm. and I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen in our culture again. Ebb and flow, ebbs and flows. I'm look, looking at drag kings now. I mean they're they're in the you know there's some drag kings who are drawing on their mustache and mm-hmm. uh, wearing their sneakers and being all macho and whatnot, uh, that that's really, really cool. You know, do do you, and mm-hmm. that's really great. But at the same time, one thing I do want to say to kings who uh, are just starting is to really look at your history and talk to, reach out to those kings and gender fuckers um, of the past and ask what was it like back then how did you develop your character back then mm-hmm. because what I have seen when that doesn't happen is a replication of um, misogyny and patriarchy mm-hmm. and sexism that is seen to people are doing it irresponsibly mm-hmm. and I'll call it out and that's one of the th- if that's just what I do to be mindful of, you have a re- even though you're on stage, and this is one of the things about gender play cabaret, you have a responsibility that you're holding space for people, mm-hmm. and if you're holding space for people and people are watching you, yeah, it feels good, but you have a message now. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least, I mean, take it for what it is, folks who are listening. Mm-hmm. But you have a message, and you th- th- that you have a kind of power now where you could shift cultures yeah. and with your what you're trying to say. 
Mm-hmm. Let me kind of go back again to like a couple of things, like what happened in my in my time. Mm-hmm. I, I want to hope that um, some of what I did, as well as others did, really helped inspire activism in certain kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And I remember a performance that I did uh, that really centered religiosity mm-hmm. and centered um, some of the religious trauma that a number of us have um, lived with, still live with, and ex- have experienced. Mm-hmm. And one of my pieces was a narrative of homophobia in the church, specifically the Catholic Church, and the hypocrisy of um, priests, per se. And so I was playing a, a priest who was struggling with his sexuality, who was really deep down a, like a, a kinky leather daddy. <laughs> and, but he was a stark um, homophobe. And you see this played out over and over again in the media in the United States, how many religious people come out, mm-hmm. but they have harmed so many people yes. in that process. And so I replicated that on stage. And the unrobing of myself, which uh, you know, underneath my, my uh, vestment was leather and harness, and the altar then became a kink altar where I was taking the candles that were also very symbolic in in religious spirituality, started doing waxing on myself (laughs) and the Bible I dropped in, there was a porn mag in it. Like there was like, you know, it was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it was to the song Personal Jesus. And I remember a phone call I'm not going to name which bar it was, but people know what I'm talking about from back then, mm-hmm. where I received a complaint. I received a complaint because somebody was offended by my number. And they were offended because it was offensive. It wasn't It wasn't drag. It wasn't drag. Um. <laughs> okay. And so what happened was because there was a complaint which went to managers that the bar at the time I got a phone call and which is one of the reasons why one of the many reasons why I stopped uh, was every performance that I was going to do it had to be reviewed by their board of directors for approval by the club's board of directors that's correct and so because it, it was too controversial and I said you're telling me a queer artist, a queer artist, that my narrative or my art had to be reviewed subjectively by a board of directors for controversy, mm-hmm. and they would give me the approval whether I'd go on stage again. And this was after um, I've been performing for more than 10 years. Yeah. And I'm thinking, hmm, you know, and so. One of the several reasons why I stopped was I couldn't, you know, I had the choice of whether to tone down or follow their rules. I would not follow the rules. I just was floored by you're telling me to follow the rules. I'm thinking, what what are we, liberation movement, like circa, like 1950-something? Like, what are we talking about here? And that's how it felt. 
and I start bec- and it felt like I was being posed, mm-hmm. and um, and it and I felt it became then a one you know one of the reasons why I kind of dropped off the face of the earth mm-hmm. was it, it I felt so deflated, uh, and uh, it became the demise my own demise of I need to now perform within a within some rigid boundaries. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't inspiring for me. No. I could I couldn't be an artist. I couldn't be. I it, I just wasn't inspired. And I I went through the motions of putting on more shows. Uh, we brought in several guests from out of town and whatnot. But my heart again just wasn't there. Yeah. You know, it just uh, the the people that I thought that I thought loved me unconditionally loved me so long as that there were conditions. Yeah. And this is, again, the ebb and flow of, like, how our culture was. And so now let's go back to the original question with you, which is why drag, genderqueer, genderfucker performers aren't getting their kind of light. light. Mm-hmm. This is the stuff that we had to contend with. Yeah. So it was that. And then I, you know, I went back to, like, reg- what, what, what I would call just, okay, final lip sync, you know, numbers. And I would gosh it was so like it was um now i think about it in terms of well, well across a lot of, i mean i was bumping and grinding with people and all uh, things i wouldn't do now <laughs> i mean it just wasn't very consensual at the time mm-hmm. um and i could admit that now uh and i think all of us can admit that now mm-hmm. that there was some inappropriateness mm-hmm. but we didn't know again what the limits were mm-hmm. um so it, it wasn't i did those things it just didn't it didn't fuel my just didn't feed my soul anymore yeah. and I literally just said I, I'm done and I'm I'm just done mm-hmm. and I just I literally just stopped cold turkey and wow. I just packed up and I'm said I'm not doing any more shows I think I sent a phone call and email and I just said I'm not doing this anymore wow. and that was it it was from drag every week three times a week to just nothing I stopped was that hard for you? I was hurt. It wasn't hard because I was so deeply hurt, mm. so deeply betrayed. I didn't feel like any people had my backs anymore. Um, we also, there was also, of course, when you have a troop, and especially when you have a troop and there are relationships, like intimate relationships that happen in that troop, mm. and the drama that unfolds, or the conflicts that unfold after that, there was that. Um, there was also, um, after the, the tour, there's like I said, there was the um, kind of the residual stuff that happened again. That that the pain that a number of us experienced by each other uh, wasn't helpful either. Mm-hmm. And so I was done, and it was time for me to move on. Um, I w- was hoping with everything in me that somebody would have picked it up, somebody would have p- started producing those shows again to the kind of um, caliber of professionalism uh, and. It just didn't happen. I blame myself a little bit because it wasn't a transition. It was just done. Mm-hmm. Um, people were also moving to different cities. A lot of the kind of core performers were moving, moving on as well. So, you know, all of those kind of converged in, and then it wasn't, I think we were kind of silent for mm, 10 years until Hari came up and made that phone call or at least text me and said hey let's let's get together I'd, I'd, I mean obviously I've only been around for a couple of years 
I, I like to think that the clubs have changed a bit. But do you think there would ever be a resuscitation of Carlos? Mm. Mm, mm, mm. That's a really good question. <laughs> Carlos made an, uh, a, an appearance last June. Um, for Coronation. For Coronation. For your decade, right? Or double, was it double, double decade? Double decade. Double decade. Wow. Were you there? No, I wasn't. Oh, I was okay. in. Uh, I was in Saskatchewan. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, I didn't even know if I was going to do what's called. So, for those listening who don't know, what a double decade walk is is that it's an anniversary of when you started with the organization mm-hmm. uh, as someone who was a uh, a, head, uh, 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 a monarch or a titular head or fundraising head. Mm. And so I started twenty years ago. And so what's called double decade, meaning that um, every 10 years, you get an opportunity to perform on stage. And so this was my 20 years coming up, um, and I wasn't sure whether I was going to do it. Mm. Because, again, did I have that same kind of passion, that same kind of inspiration? I didn't want to lip sync on stage. That's just not my my deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I came out, and I wanted to put together a piece that um, honored the 20-year journey of uh, my personal development and my own um, personal growth mm-hmm. and also take folks a little bit on a ride with this is what things were back then. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that came out or not, whether that resonated or not, um, I don't know. Um, that's g- really up to the people to find meaning in the in the in the piece uh but it was a collaboration uh and carlos was all about costume i've always been about costume to to tell a a, a part of storytelling Mm -hmm. and so um parts of it um my hat was from philadelphia uh, made by an artist in philadelphia it was made out of leather and there was um, feathers um, and shiny things on it let's mm-hmm. just say um, my cape was a collaboration with um, um, with feather uh, as well as with with Levi Foy also known mm. as Prairie Sky yeah and um, I had this vision and what I w- wanted to do and so there was a collaboration with the costumes. I took literally months to put together the number, finding exactly the right piece that conveyed a message. And the song was by Foreigner, I Want to Know What Love Is. Ah, yes. Remember that one? Yeah. I mean, such a lovely, like, it's a it's a timeless number. It is. With such deep meaning for a lot of folks. And if you listen to the words, and the philosophy behind kind of what gender play was, those who who were a part of it. And so there was me coming out. I, it's like I had a black cloak, leather pants, black everything with my hat. Mm-hmm. My cloak had these big feathers, black feathers that were jutting from the sides mm-hmm. um, and lace. It was just this beautiful, gothy, it was a combination of goth versus there's a bit of kink darkness 
a bit of sensuality that was also part of it as well. Mm -hmm. And there was a bit, and I'm known for reveals. Yeah. Taking off shit off my body. (laughs) And because burlesque, boylesque was also part of my history too, which I didn't even know existed until I organically found it again Mm -hmm. or on the internet or whatnot. And so with with the song it was a reveal of who was our community it was homage to our community and so even though there was i was all in black underneath my cape there was a leather a sequin leather flag underneath like my underneath my arm there was a trans flag there was a reveal of my cloak and then of course there was another cloak underneath mm-hmm. it was like sequin this beautiful sequin rainbow underneath and really it was more of my hope was to convey that we're all in this together mm-hmm. regardless of your identity regardless of your kinks or what who you were attracted to what you did with yourself and other people and other things mm-hmm. that we're all in this together and i hope that it resonated i don't know if i i mean to answer your question i don't know I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it would come off with, you know, I was I had a little bit of insecurities talking to Hari about this. I said, I don't even know. I mean, I won't pull out the piece again. I don't know if people are going to get it. I don't know if people are going to get it. Because mm-hmm. I don't know where people are at these days. I'm, I'm very far removed from Jag. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll see. Maybe he'll come out again. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful costume piece with a message. Maybe. We'll see what happens. If not in the, this year, maybe in another 10 years or so. We'll see what happens. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I know that we'll be waiting with bated breath. When I came out, the first one, I actually got messages on Facebook from folks from, from other cities because there was an image that I put up, mm-hmm. a single image that I put up because not everybody not everybody knows, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who Carlos is. And um, some people have no idea. Like, had no idea. Um, still, people don't know, you know, my, my history. Mm-hmm. And so I have to kind of trickily navigate that with because of other work-related stuff and private stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Like, who knows? Who shouldn't know? It's not even a shouldn't. Let me reframe. It's who knows and who knows. That's it. Yeah. That I have to really kind of think about for reasons that what's really kind of still are you know it's still it is what it is and you and I talked about this which is when you're still in a workplace and you depend on especially if you're an entrepreneur and you depend on people trusting your brand right and who your audience is you still have to be very careful yeah I have to be very careful about that of course so we'll we'll see what happens I will let folks know um, I did actually um, said to uh, some individuals that if I, uh, you know, Carlos comes out, I will give you ample notice. Mm-hmm. Um, I there are some friends from um, U.S. who want to come up and see Carlos perform again, and some other provinces who want to see Carlos. It touches my heart, but I will give I will certainly give you and everyone else ample notice. Amazing. Carlos, this has been one of the mo- most moving interviews I've ever done. Thank you oh. so much for all of your honesty and all of your wisdom. This has been so appreciated. Thank you so much. And um, I love what you're doing. This is so incredibly important for our, our culture. Uh, it's so incredibly important, important for our movement. And again, I want to honor all those who have uh, risked 
their life mm -hmm. and who they are, to share their art, to share their history and their lives. And I am just so excited with the future holds for all of us. Thank you so much to Carlos for sitting down with me. It's only fitting that after we speak with one of our most established drag performers, we speak with one of our newest, but only in age. Next week's guest is the youngest drag queen in Winnipeg, a spitfire kid with some of the coolest parents I've ever met. Here's a clip from her episode. Ha on Halloween, yeah. I went in heels, and I didn't bring any other shoes, because I went to my friend's <laughs> house. Rookie mistake. Yeah. And then I was I like walked like five blocks in heels. Yeah. And my feet were like hurting. Oh god, yeah. So I had to stop like a block early. Mm-hmm. And like somebody picked me up. <laughs> and then just like waited in the car until the two other friends I went trick-or-treating with like got to the car. Thank you so much to Claire Boning of Veneer for the wonderful intro and outro music. And until next episode, please remember to always tip your local drag performers. Dirt Diggler. Dirt Diggler. Dirk.